Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. My book editor for Brown is the New White and now Director of Strategic Communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. What's on tap for our listeners today? Hey, Steve. Today, we're going to take a close look at a topic that's very much in the news as the presidential race heats up, and that is we're going to try to understand Pete Buttigieg's what you call and refer to as his black problem. There has been a lot of media coverage about how he's polling at 0% with black voters, and we'll explore why that's the case and why it's important for Democratic primary voters to understand why he's polling at 0%. And to help understand this problem, we were able to interview a college instructor from South Bend, Indiana, who has carefully followed and written about Buttigieg's administration for several years now, and will preview a new report that just came out from Democracy in Color looking at Mayor Pete's record on racial issues in South Bend. But before we get into all of that, Steve, I wanted to get into this quickly, is the big news that the presidential primary race, um, in that race, Kamala Harris suspended her campaign and we want to, I just want to briefly get into it because it really is a significant issue and topic. And we unfortunately don't have time to fully explore all the layers of it. But I thought that we should talk about it briefly with um, here on the podcast for our listeners and get into a little bit about what it means and where do we go from here now that Kamala's out. So what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, it was definitely a shock. I remember we were all on a Zoom calls and someone said, Kamala's dropping out. And we were all like, mm-hmm. oh, jaws dropped right. at the floor, right? I mean, she's already qualified for the next debate. That's right. And uh, we're just a couple months away from the actual voting in Iowa. So I was very surprised, um, but f- mainly disappointed, right? So mm-hmm. now not only have we lost the person with the best chance um, to become the first woman of color president. That's right. Um, but that something else people didn't really pay a lot of attention to is that I'm pretty sure that of all the campaigns, Kamala had the most women of color in very senior positions. And that's going to be another real loss to the field um, as well. You know, that's a really good reminder. I had kind of forgotten that point. And it's just, uh, for me, just uh, several layers of loss all around. I mean, whether or not she was your top preferred candidate and regardless, I felt like Kamala herself brought a lot to this race and what she represents, right? I was definitely, like you said, disappointed, super surprised. Uh, I had to try to wrap my head around the different reasons why they decided to do that at that point and had to really take in the fact that here we are now, it is going to be a wider field of primary candidates than ever in a year where election cycle, where we started off with one of the most diverse slates of candidates ever, which is very exciting. Right. And it's just overall maddening. Yes. And all, all the top polling candidates at the moment are all white in a, in a party that's uh, almost half people of color. Right? Almost so, half. Right. So it says a lot about the state of politics. Right. And it's, it's something I hadn't grasp and appreciate it. So not only do we have a president, right, who's whipping up white supremacy, who holds his hold on power is rooted in his um, his appeals to white supremacy, but the fallout is so far reaching now that it's really impacted Democratic voters, Democratic donors, the Democratic electorate, that people really are so traumatized that 
they think that the only way we can actually beat him is to get a white guy in order to defeat Trump. And so that's played this big role in terms of blocking the candidates of color from getting the kind of traction and liftoff that they that they really um, could and should actually have. Yeah, I feel like making a T-shirt that says we don't actually need a white guy to beat Trump or maybe <laughs> big billboards and put them all over the place because – I mean, I will say that there are journalists in the media who have noticed this, and especially journalists of color, and we've appreciated following their coverage. And I was so glad that CNN's host, Victor Blackwell, had asked you to be on his show a few days ago on his show New Day to talk about it over the weekend. If people, listeners, by the way, want to see and catch that interview, they can find it on our Democracy in Color Facebook page where we have that clip. You did, I thought you did really well and Even added a lot. Even though it was 4.30 in the morning, West Coast yes, time. Yes, and you woke up around 3 to get on uh, the studio, get to the studio. So everybody do check that out. So, Steve, what's your biggest takeaway now, uh, you know, from also just why and, you know, this context of Kamala's campaign and how that unfolded and the decision they made? Yeah, so I'm still trying to process it all and make sense of it. There's a lot of different aspects to it. Um, but one of the things that I think is most stark and I think important to try to come to terms with is there's definitely something generational happening in terms of the black community. And I think for me, it was particularly poignant and vivid really over the past month, right? This series of you know encounters and events that actually happened, right? So a month ago, right, I had you know, a very moving interaction with Jesse Jackson. He was like, you know, my model and role model. And I ran into him at the airport in Washington, D.C. when we were back there, right? And so we talked about that exchange on the on the Thanksgiving episode of the podcast. But Reverend's 78 years old. And so that really felt in some ways like kind of a generational passing of the torch of him reaching out to me and talking about how he had read my book. Then a couple of weeks after that, Stead Herndon, the 20-something African-American writer for the New York Times, wrote this deep, extensive piece analyzing how black voters are res- were responding to Kamala, Corey, and the whole overall Democratic field. And he really highlighted from his conversations, he was down in South Carolina talking to a lot of different voters down there, black voters, how a lot of the younger black folks were drawn to Warren and Sanders because their politics are so solidly left and progressive. So you had that happen, and then after, shortly after that, Kamala, who's 54, who's my age peer, dropped out of the race because of lack of support. And so you have these three things kind of happening simultaneously or in the same, same time period. So as this commentary was raging, Estet had a very interesting observation on all of this, putting the generational thing into context on when he actually tweeted out when people were talking about it all. Yeah, I remember you sharing that with me, and I wanted to read it because it is really interesting, and I definitely didn't think about it from this angle. I'm going to read you his tweet. It says, Harris and Booker typify an interesting window of black Democrats, young enough to have a future, but were molded in the Obama era and carry records and rhetoric from that time. What's coming in Abrams and Gillum throughout freshman house class, there's a generation across ideology freed of that. Yeah, so I think he's actually really on to something here, right? And so that's what I've been really processing since, you know, Kamala dropped out, right? So you look at Jesse Jackson's campaigns in the 1980s. The Rainbow Coalition were both very black and also very left in terms of their politics, right? And Jesse's campaign was so black in 84, we had to regularly remind people at events, like, to make sure we had somebody white up on stage. So we had a, it making it look like, it, you know, reflecting <laughs> some right? diversity. That's really interesting. And then the Rainbow Coalition itself 
the as a very as a metaphor was very racially explicit in frame for running his campaign right and so he when he, in, he talked in his 1984 convention speech he was very explicit about naming african americans the significance of black voters um, within the electorate within the electoral calculus about how we actually go about winning if blacks vote in great numbers progressive whites win it's the only way progressive whites win and Jesse's economic agenda was also very redistributive and far-reaching. He talked regularly about cutting the military budget by 25%, using that money to build schools, bridges, hospitals, put workers back to work. Right? I mean, he was so left in his economics right, that Bernie supported Jesse back in the, in the 80s. So you had that. And then 20 years later, Obama's campaigns were much more implicit racially and economically. Right. So Obama rose to prominence with the 2004 keynote speech at the Democratic Convention, where I had actually forgotten how much he consciously actually downplayed race in that speech. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. And economically, I mean, in fairness, it's lost the history now, ironically, but that you know, the economy was absolutely cratering when Obama took over, and he did bring it back. And so I don't think he gets enough credit for that. But the truth is his economic agenda was definitely cautious and careful, right? particularly around housing and foreclosures and things like that. So over this past decade, Kamala and Corey were shaped in the Obama mold of being more cautious and emphasizing unity over really going to battle and fighting with your with the with the folks who are you know waging attack on us but the racist backlash has been so severe under Trump and people of color's lives are so much more in jeopardy that younger people are demanding more aggressive and far-reaching solutions so they know we're in a fight and they want someone who will lead that fight and I do think that that's part a big part of what has played itself out so far in 2020 and looking forward that's right. And I think that's what Ested, that journalist we were just talking about, was referencing in his tweet and about some of the struggles we see the candidates of color in this cycle having. Yeah. And I think him him um, juxtaposing it or comparing it to uh, the different, like the, what's coming with Abrams and, uh, and Gilliam and whatnot. So it really reminded me of a conversation I had two years ago with you know, a, a young black activist who's now, you know, prominent young black woman activist about the presidential race. And I was like, well, Kamala could be the first you know, black woman president. And this person was very adamant. She's like, I'm waiting for Stacey, right? And so I think wow. that that dynamic um, is also very much at play. Very right? telling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's sad that Kamala didn't make it. And it's definitely revealing about the biases in the country and the party. Um, that is what we discussed in that CNN inter- interview with um, um, Victor. Um, but there's also much important larger strategic implications I think we have to take to heart, and that's what I'm really trying to grapple with and process. Good reminder. Thanks for sharing that with us. Good, good stuff to think about. So speaking of biases, let's get to the core of what we want to talk about in this episode today. And so, again, we're talking about biases in the nomination process, which has also been in the news. And so today we're going to talk about Buttigieg's rise to being one of the front runners for the Democratic nomination while still polling, by the way, at zero 
percent with African Americans. That would be zero. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so some people. Uh, I want to kind of mention that when we were planning this episode, some people, including me, I'll be honest, were a little bit concerned about having an episode focused on Buttigieg and his black problem because it might come off as a kind of attack on him. But I know that you think, of, you know, you have uh, framed it so that it's helped me understand that this is a much larger issue and why it's so important. And so can you explain again to us why this was important for you to talk about today? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of you know nervousness, anxiety around saying anything critical about anybody. You know, circular firing squad, and you're you're, you're going to defeat us all by raising anything right. critical, right? Not so, being unified. We are talking about defeating a president who I would say literally is marching this country towards fascism. This the complete disregard of democratic institutions, anything in that regard, autocratic rule, and so we have to have candid conversations and real talk about the best way to defeat him. And so I wanted to have this conversation for a number of different reasons, right? So first, I do see this as a public service to Democratic voters, especially in light of this concern about electability. Everyone's desperate to defeat Trump, and everyone's doing a lot of guessing about the relative strength of the various candidates up against Trump. From an electability standpoint, someone polling at 0% among black voters should set off serious alarm bells. Strong, enthusiastic African-American support is the cornerstone of Democratic victory, and it's too often underappreciated and overlooked. So second, it's very important that we dispel this myth that Buttigieg's problems with black voters are due to homophobia in the black community. It's a very dangerous myth that weakens the fabric of the progressive coalition. I mean, obviously, homophobia is very real and widespread, and not unique to the black community. So there are very concrete reasons for black folks' concerns about him, and we need to understand that. And then lastly, this is about helping Buttigieg and his campaign be better. Right? If he gets the nomination, there's a lot he needs to learn if he's going to inspire and galvanize black voters, which, again, he can't win with. And so I also I think we want to offer this content for him and his campaign to be the best that they can in terms of being able to inspire and galvanize as much of the Democratic electorate as possible. Thanks, Steve. I think those points make total sense. I mean, that's a solid argument right there. And I, I know a lot of people are anxious about 2020. Stakes are high. I feel like people are just ready to freak out <laughs> about almost anything, especially and if there's... daily basis. Yeah, about, you know, there's definitely the camp that is um, saying, you know, let's not, ha you know, have add more criticism to the Democratic candidates because... We need to stay, you know, show show a front, a united front. But what you pointed out is that we also need to hold the candidates accountable still, right? We can't let them off the hook for things that issues that are still very important for the base. And I think constructive, you know, constructive feedback and criticism is um, totally warranted. And so I appreciate you laying those out. There's been a lot of media coverage, like I said, about the fact that Buttigieg does have this problem with black voters. Um, does have, you know, a number of problems with them. But there, I felt like there's been a missing analysis of the underlying reasons. So can you tell us, you know, from your point of view, why are so many black voters skeptical about Pete Buttigieg at this point? 
Yeah, I think it's we can look to this line from a James Baldwin essay that I really like to reference frequently. Right, so he wrote this essay in the 1960s called "Sweet Lorraine." Right, and it was about his friend Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright who wrote "A Raisin in the Sun," one of the first black shows on Broadway. And he went to the to the theater and he said he had never seen so many black people. Right, so his quote was, "I had never in my life seen so many black people in the theater." And the reason was that up until that point, black people had ignored the theater because the theater had always ignored them. That's right. I like that quote so much. I remember you using that in the book, Brown is the New White, and uh, I really appreciate that quote when you put it in the book. And it's yeah. apt for this scenario. Right. I mean, sadly, if they keep coming back to it because Democrats well, so frequently— It represents so much. Right. So and I think it's very succinct in terms of really laying out what the, what the challenges are, right? So I would say that there's three fundamental components of Buttigieg's black problem, right? So first is he has deep ignorance about black people in the black community. It's a lack of familiarity and awareness, right? He was recently interviewed on the uh, New York Times podcast, The Daily, and they asked him about his pre-politics background. So in there, he referenced going to Harvard, working at McKinsey Consulting, serving in, the, serving in Afghanistan. Notably absent from many of his, of his discussion about his background and experiences is anything relating to African-Americans or the black people. No time in black barbershops, schools on the wrong side of town, experiences of people dealing with the criminal justice system. I remember Jesse Jackson running for president. He would do this thing and says, anybody who has experience with, uh, know somebody in jail or prison, raise your hand. And almost everybody who was black would raise their hand because mm. of the way the criminal justice system works. Yeah. So this ignorance is a core component of his problem. The very little exposure to the black community and its challenges, despite growing up and being mayor of a city that's twice as black as the country as a whole. Wow. Right? So that's the first problem. Second, he lacks relationships in terms of staff, advisors, and friends who can help offset his ignorance. I remember in the 2016 campaign, People were talking about the attacks on Hillary Clinton, and someone was saying that there was like a whole long line of black folks who would show up and you know write long think pieces and really defend her, and they had been part of that that network and that community yeah. for a long period of time, and so she was able to draw upon that. Buddha just doesn't have yeah. the relationships, and so as a result, you see his ignorance also surfacing over and over again. And then ways that he has to continually apologize for, you know, using the phrase "all lives matter," or showing up at the Tea Party events back in 2010, firing the black police chief in South Bend. So it's all of these different examples that are off-putting to black folks. And then third, and this really hasn't gotten very much attention at all. I think that Klobuchar tried to allude to it, and then there's a big pushback on her. But it's true that he has so far demonstrated a complete lack of self-awareness about the white male privilege that has helped propel him to this position. There is no person of color or woman with as little experience or accomplishments as he has had who would ever be considered for the most powerful position in the world. That's right. So, so good to be reminded of Right. That. <laughs> so it's not just to like cast dispersions around, uh, you know, white men. As, I, as footnote five of chapter five of my book says, some of my best friends are white guys. It's a big double standard here. But in a party where 77% of the voters are not white men, how is he going to reunite that party if he can't see his own white male privilege? How is he going to heal a country plagued by racism and sexism? So... 
not only does he lack self-awareness, but he also hasn't grappled with his own implicit racial bias. That if you look at his record, and that's what we're going to get into more, shows that he has favored white people in how he governed as mayor. So that constellation of reasons, the ignorance and knowledge, the lack of relationships and the lack of self-awareness are, I would argue, pillars of what his problem with black America is. Yes, I would say that's quite a list. And there's, you know, there's, there you go. I mean, those are points that I also just think just don't get reported enough and people don't really know about those points enough. And so that's, that's a good argument that you just laid out. I wanted to add that for more background to learn more about the specific manifestations of these problems, there's a good New York Times article by reporter Reed Epstein that ran on November 21st. And the headline is, Pete Buttigieg is in bad shape with black Democrats. Here's why. It's a good article worth checking out. So Steve, you talked about the importance of having a diverse team around you if you're a candidate, and also about Pete Buttigieg's implicit bias in hiring people and awarding contracts. To help us get more insight into that, we were lucky and able to go to the source and talk with a South Bend, Indiana college instructor who has been following and studying and documenting Buttigieg's track record for years, as it turns out. Yeah, it's funny because I was, the day I was going to like take off from doing politics stuff, I got all obsessed with diving deep into South Bend records. I'm kind of a local government nerd myself. So I was, okay. re- I was reviewing <laughs> agendas and minutes of South Bend commissions and boards. Sounds fun. Whatever <laughs> floats different people's boats, right? So, But it got me thinking about what records are out there in terms of really being able to document and tell the story around what happened in local government. So I was researching that, and I came across these medium posts by Ricky Cleves, a South Bend native who's done a lot of this research and analysis that I was trying to pull together. So that gave us a real head start on putting together the Democracy in Color report that we're releasing today. That's right. And our report has some pretty stark findings about Mayor Pete's track record, as it turns out, in terms of hiring African-Americans and awarding government contracts to businesses of color owned by people of color versus businesses owned by white people. But before that, let's go listen to your interview with Ricky. So can you give us a little bit of just a background about how you, uh, like what, well, first, what do you do, and then what you, where you grew up, um, and how you came to do what you do now? Sure. So I, I grew up in South Bend uh, on the city's west side, and for your uh, listeners unfamiliar with South Bend, um, South Bend's west and east sides are very different. Um, the east has our city's colleges and universities, um, some have heard of Notre Dame, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, it's whiter and wealthier. And the west side, uh, where I live now, too, is uh, racially diverse and it's lower income. And uh, right now I teach uh, humanities at the University of Notre Dame and also in a correctional facility in northwestern Indiana, uh, where I've taught for about five years. So how did you come to start going to local meetings and tracking what the city government was doing? How did you come to kind of get into that as an interest area for you? Uh, around 2015 and, and uh, at the beginning of 2016, uh, Mayor Buttigieg tried to sell South Bend's largest public park uh, to private ownership, and uh, they were under terms that would have allowed for future residential or commercial development. Mm-hmm. He had already sold another park on the city's west side, and uh, this one was near. So I, I'd grown up going to the park, and I liked taking my kids there. 
Uh, I got involved in some environmental organizing, attending parks board meetings uh, to try to stop the sale. And I noticed in this effort, uh, parks leadership and economic development leadership we met with, um, they were nearly all Caucasian. Uh-huh. And I wondered why uh, this major decision was being made without diverse perspectives. So it got me wondering about diversity in the Buttigieg administration, and I began requesting public records about it. And I found, um, and just in that effort, um, of the top 27 Parks Department employees, uh, there were no African Americans, and there weren't any uh, appointed to the Parks Board either, uh, which is appointed by Mayor Buttigieg. And there weren't any Hispanics in the Economic Development Office, uh, the entire department. Well, really, all throughout city government, uh, I started digging deeper, and um, there was a lack of diversity I found in nearly all city departments, uh, as well as boards. Uh, so it was striking to see that, and to see that it hadn't been covered by our local media. So how did you go about researching that, or looking into it, or like what what kinds of information did you try to get, and did you try to get it from? A lot of the information comes from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, every government's I think city, state, um, and so on, has to file every two years uh, a demographic report about their uh, staff uh, according to gender and according to uh, race or ethnicity. And that's, um, it reveals uh, the demographics of city staff according to um, job type, according to salary level. And I started looking at these and um, taking the raw data and uh, putting it all together to, to, to uh, look at patterns. From your visual observation, what were your findings about the department heads under his tenure? Uh, they're nearly entirely white and mostly male. So you, you also wrote a piece about uh, government contracting in terms of the minority business enterprises um, under, under this administration. Um, is that right? That's right. And what did you find in that? And what did you what did, what were you looking at? And then what did you find? Well, I, I was looking at uh, what what percentage of South Bend City contracts are spent on African American owned business. I reasoned that because there was a <clears throat> underrepresentation, a dramatic one, of African Americans in city government, uh, that was likely being affected. And uh, the city of South Bend uh, now spends about a hundred million dollars on contracts each year. Mm-hmm. Ordinance, it's required to report on the share of these won by minority uh, women-owned business. And when I when I started digging, I found the city board in charge of this ordinance and the promotion of minority and women-owned business had uh, recorded a laundry list of problems um, in 2014 between minority-owned businesses and the city. But then that board didn't meet for three and a half years. Wow. And uh, when I got some public records of the um, diversity reports, which were not published online, except for one, found that spending on African-American-owned business declined and then zeroed out in Mayor Buttigieg's first term. So in 2015, by the end of his first term, there was $90 million spent by the city and no documented spending on African-American-owned business. Wow. And by the middle of the second term in 2017, South Bend spent about $101 million and recorded uh, $707.88 in contracts with African-American-owned business. Wow. Just a couple of months ago, an independent consultant did an analysis and found about $80 million of contracts with the city of South Bend had no uh, money spent on African-American-owned business. Wow. So I want to I want to thank you for coming on with us and really also just thank you for your level of vigilance and, and, and diligence on all of this. I think that's a really important part of making local government work. And I think for this 
country now with, you know, your mayor on the national stage and we're trying to figure out who he is, having people who have been there all along and have seen it up close. I think it's going to be a very valuable service. I want to just thank you for what you've been doing on that front as well. Well, I appreciate your consideration, Steve, of, of this work and uh, your promotion, too, of, of uh, what it would take to uh, make for a more diverse democracy. Uh, and I wish you and your uh, listeners uh, the best. I really appreciated our chance to get to talk to Ricky and learn about the work he does and what motivates him. And it was really affirming to know that there are people who are doing their part in a way that's, you know, in small towns, um, being the watchdog and looking at issues and paying attention to whether or not people in leadership are, you know, doing their job and being fair. And that there are, this I know I've told you before, Steve, I found it really heartening and it gave me a lot of hope that there are white guys like Ricky, and he's pretty young, that there's guys like him out there who care about issues around race and racism and racial equity and justice. So that gave me a nice little lift at the end of this year, I'll tell you that much. His work is important. a contribution to our democracy. I really feel it's true. So I know that you had mentioned that his work, Ricky's work, has pointed the way towards all kinds of data that you wanted us to put together into a report, which we have. And you wanted to tell us more about that that report and the underlying data. Yes. So we did do a deep dive on uh, the track record of the Buttigieg administration in terms of hiring top-level positions, department heads in particular, and also in terms of awarding government contracts. And so we commissioned uh, Jenny Montoya Tanzi, who was a lawyer and a former Obama administration official, to pull together much of the existing data that she could gather into a single report. And that's what we're releasing today. Yeah, I found it really interesting what she helped pull together and all of that information. And again, that information is out there if people you know, are able to gather and organize it. And uh, it's very, very telling. So I wanted to ask you, Steve, let us know. Tell us a little bit about what the report says. So the three big takeaways, and bear in mind, that South Bend is a city that's nearly half people of color, something that people don't don't realize. Absolutely. I was surprised to find that out myself. So first, and Ricky uh, mentioned this, out of $100 million in contracts that are awarded in 2017, just $700 went to African-American contractors, one African-American company. Wow. That's zero point zero 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 seven. I had the I when I tried to actually have Google tell me what the percentage was, it did that minus whatever thing. So I had to go actually count it out. So basically zero. So out of the hundred million dollars in contracts, one contract, seven hundred dollars toward Afri- African Americans. Unbelievable. Second major finding is that ninety percent of the department heads are white and 83% of the people that Buttigieg appointed to head up city departments were white. And third, this is back to the contracting piece, the South Bend is one of the more diverse cities in Indiana, which is a fairly non-diverse state overall. But the rate of awarding government contracts to minority-owned firms in South Bend is 19 times lower than the rate that the state overall does. I just want to repeat 
the first fact that you read because I still can't believe it. Again, out of the 100 million in government contracts, 700 bucks went to one black company, black-owned company, and right. um, that's it. Okay. Just want to make sure about that. Right. And there's one other point in terms of this, uh, the appointees as well. It's also important, I think, to recognize, and it's telling, I think, what people do in terms of leadership development and empowerment and succession planning. Right. So there was just had a mayoral election in uh, South Bend in November, and there was a strong African-American candidate running, but Buttigieg had recruited his own chief of staff, a young white guy who had not held public office before, backed him and supported him to be actually become the next mayor to replace him. Right. And again, if folks want to read the entire report, which I really highly recommend, so those of you listening, please do check out the report. I feel like Jenny Montoya Tanzi did a great job, and this is not something that you're going to find um, you know, anywhere else. So go to our website. It's democracyincolor.com. Check that out. So, Steve, what then are the implications, in your opinion, of these findings? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode. It's really trying to understand why he has this problem and then see with black voters today is that there's a direct connection between his track record with African-Americans as mayor. And so you can make that connection between his actions, inactions over the past eight years as mayor and the current reception of, of black voters who are currently withholding all support from him. So that, I think, is the biggest takeaway is understanding that it, there are reasons why, and this is not surprising, the African-American community is actually fairly sophisticated in its assessment and analysis of these various, these various candidates. So in terms of the full picture of this, right, people want to hear some of Buttigieg's explanations for some of the shortcomings that there's a video that was on the route dot um, com uh, just recently, Monday, December 9th, under the headline, Pete Buttigieg on Institutional Racism, Economic Inequality, and White Supremacy. It's an interview where they he kind of speaks to some of these different pieces. Yeah, and I got I to gotta share this. I love the opening line of that article, and I love The Root, and they've yeah, it's always, awesome. they got their way of uh, <laughs> take on the news. So the opening line is, systematic racism and white supremacy in particular is the force that is most likely to destroy America, quote from Pete Buttigieg. And then the next line uh, by the writer in the Root article, he said it, and all it took was an eight-year-old viral video clip, his campaign polling at 0% among black voters, and someone calling him a lying MF. <laughs> also, says the writer, I am the someone who called him that. Yeah, that was a very interesting exchange. But it does. He gives after he called him that, but he just called him up on the phone, and they they wrote about that. And then he says, "Let's do a video interview." So some of these substantive critiques, if you want to hear Buttigieg's response, are captured in that video. Okay, great. So check that out, that video out. So just so we don't end on a note that's just the criticism, I wanted to ask you if you have some you know some quick pointers for. Buttigieg and his team, what can he and the team um, do to improve? Right. So 
on the one hand, I, I want to say first, it was not rocket science, but then that reminds me of uh, this quote from uh, my friend Chris Edley, who's a law professor, also one of Obama's uh, professors. He worked on Bill Clinton's big race initiative, right? And he, Chris has this quote saying, dealing with race is not rocket science. It's harder than rocket science. And so mm. some truth in that, but I think he, Chris is actually being a bit harsh, which is part of what his brand and reputation is as well. So I think there's some basic best practices that, you know, that Buttigieg and really all the candidates should look at following. And I would break them down into three S's, right? Staffing, solutions, and strategy. So we talked about staffing. That's the relationships, having people around you. And it applies as well to presidential campaigns. What's the diversity of the composition of your senior staff? Um, almost half of Democratic voters are, are people of color. The majority of Democratic voters are women. So what's your team look like? And what experience and insights do they bring to helping you shape your campaign and move things forward? And unfortunately, Pete has work on, to do on this front as well. But what I was able to analyze, it looks like uh, about 80% of his top campaign staff is white. All right. Well, there's that. So that's the staffing. So what, um, what do you mean by solutions? What ideas do you have? So that's policies and agenda and priorities. Are you offering solutions that speak to the country's communities of color? Are you talking about the racial wealth gap and reparations? Are you talking about criminal justice reform, housing and education in terms of people of color at large, immigration? Right? We still have children in cages on the border in this country. So who's actually prioritizing that and bringing that up as an issue? So the solutions is which issues are you prioritizing, lifting up in your policy agenda? Okay. Sounds, that sounds good. Uh, sound good. And what about what about strategy? What would you recommend? So that's how do you go about winning the election? And this is partly in this context of all the fear of the electorate and the assumption that we have to have a have a of a white guy as the at the top of the ticket, and that we have to prioritize white voters, right? So what is your theory of case? Well, your theory of the case in terms of how do we win? Are you going to try to change the minds of people who voted for Trump and show get them to see the error of their ways? Or are you going to really put your money where your mouth is in terms of revitalizing the Obama coalition? Our Democrats are going to spend over a billion dollars. Half of Democratic voters are people of color. So will you call for spending $500 million on a massive voter of color mobilization program? So that gets the strategy. And also, people should be pledging now that to not have a segregated presidential ticket. Will you publicly pledge that your ticket will be balanced by race and by gender? What about resources they can look into? For me, I feel like Pete, he could use a crash course on learning some things that he doesn't know that he needs to know and he get, you know, getting up to speed on really understanding what it is um, that, you know, communities of color in this country face. So I know that it's been rep repeatedly reported that Mayor Pete has said that he's reading Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. People kind of joke about right. like how long does it take right. him. But that too, but he mentions it apparently, you know, a number of times and people are saying, well, is it taking you that long to read? It's not that long yes, of a, it's a book. it's a very short book, right? <laughs> or so. are we to assume, are you reading again and again? Um, what about other books, Steve, that he could benefit from reading? Well, there's always Brown is the New White, oh. which was put forward to be a uh, Brown is the analysis. New White. Um, but there's a lot of good stuff out there, and, and particularly at this point in time, right? They really believe that the single best distillation of all these different types of issues regarding America and black people and the country's relationship to black people is the New York Times 1619 Project that was spearheaded by Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
That's right. That is such a fantastic piece of work that I highly encourage everybody to re- either read it online or try to get a physical hard copy of it. And again, that's the New York Times' project, and it's simply called 1619. Yeah, and I just saw yesterday that if you want to order copies of it, that you need to do it as soon as possible. That once they run out, they're not going to print copies of it more. I mean, eventually I think there's going to be more of a book, but if you want to get the copies of the actual magazine, you have to do it right away. But yeah, it's as good a crash course of anything I've ever seen. I mean, I was an African-American studies major in college. I've been studying this stuff for decades. And this really is so on point. It covers politics, economics, housing, education. And there's a, there's a podcast, 1619 podcast, that would be perfect for Mayor Pete's team to listen to on the campaign bus or plane. And also this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Pete's team should listen to Democracy in <laughs> Color. Definitely, they definitely Phillips. should. And so that's all the time we have now for this episode. So thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you to our special guest today, Ricky Klee. And if you want to get a copy of the Democracy in Color report on the Buttigieg administration's record, go to democracyincolor.com. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. Also, we have a hotline where you can leave a voicemail, so feel free to call us with questions or comments and share those, and we'll try to get to those in future episodes. That number is 415-209-5103. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded at the podcast studio, San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.